dad. Hey, Shad, this has been like our most technically challenging episode. You mean incompetent episode? It's not incompetent. It's just like disasters all around. Um, but I guess, hey, dad. Hey, Shad, <laughs> Um, question for you. Are you a cat or a dog person? You definitely know the answer. I'm a dog person all the way. Oh, I guess I do know the answer. Yeah. I feel like you like claim to be a big dog person and then you're really into my little dog, you know? So sometimes Your little dog doesn't even qualify as a dog. I'm not even sure it qualifies as a small hamster. That's what you say, but for everybody listening, this man adores my dog. This man like holds, oh my God, you're such a, you're such a dude about it. All right, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Um, but other than that, we have a couple quick things to say, which is, again, we've definitely had a kind of hectic summer and we are just getting back into the swing of normal recordings and hopefully we'll be putting out one episode a week going forward. Um, thank you guys for sticking with us and bearing with us and continuing to listen. We really appreciate it. And we're excited to like be back and we are very excited about this podcast. So I just wanted to kind of put that out before we jump into the topics that we wanted to talk about today. Anything you want to Before add? we get into the heavy stuff. So so I guess today we were going to talk about kind of personal responsibility and climate change um, stemming from the fact that I've been having a lot of TikTok arguments and discussions kind of about personal responsibility. Just stop right there. The fact you're having TikTok Whoa. arguments is already kind of weird, but all right. That's like I'll what I do on the on. internet for fun. That doesn't sound like fun to me, but I guess to each their own. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um but I guess I've been like having a lot of these discussions with people who feel like they're on my side of the political aisle or like should be aligned with my views kind of up to this point. And there's been a lot of posts online pretty recently about the fact that, you know, BP created the carbon footprint in order to, you know, push the blame of climate change back onto the individual or that your individual carbon footprint isn't important or doesn't matter. And I guess I'm going to get into some of the stats that I've been talking about on the internet. But is there anything you wanted to say kind of before we jumped into that? Yeah, I mean, I guess this whole kind of discussion that I know is out there worries me because really smart people argue very passionately that carbon footprints for individuals don't matter because it's all about corporations and others who argue that if we don't know how to enact and demonstrate system change ourselves, we're never going to change the broader system. And all of this is really, to me, tools that we need to figure out how to be better planetary citizens. And I see a lot of passing the buck and seeing who we can blame. And I guess that's what concerns me because whether BP created the carbon footprint, which by the way, they did not, this has been an academic tool for decades before that. But the idea that a piece of analysis defines who is right and who is wrong, that kind of worries me. So that's something we're going to unpack during the show. That said, there's no question we all need to get smarter. And by we, I mean people and governments and corporations. And if this tool is useful, we should be using it, but we should not be abusing it, meaning we shouldn't be passing the buck. Right. Absolutely. I completely agree. So I guess where I'll start is kind of, there's been two studies that have been quoted to me a lot. Um, the first is the, I'm pulling them up and I'll put them in the show notes as well, but the carbon majors report. Um, which pinpoints how a small set of fossil fuel producers like hold the key to systemic change, which is that, you know, like half of our emissions are created by like 25 like state and government actors, which is obviously important and like definitely needs to be addressed and changed and pushed forward. I'm curious to see how you think we should do that. Um, but I think that like just quoting that stat really lacks a lot of nuance. Number one is that 
like all of those 25 state and company actors are in the fuel industry. So we have to think about kind of what they're doing and why it's so bad and why we need to call out these particular companies. And I also think that when people quote this, we forget like who is using a lot of this. And obviously not every individual holds the keys in their hand to like shut down Aramco. But, you know, if people are using and producing oil, investors are involved because it's a it's a continual cycle and like it's very, you know, <laughs> capitalism, I guess. I don't even know what to say about that. But, you know, it's not that these actors are acting in a vacuum just to create emissions for the sake of it. And so that's the first study I wanted to kind of talk about and bring up and ask your opinion on. And the second is this one about cruise ships, which I'm sure you've heard about. I have. Which is that like people at one point were like, could cruising be like a low carbon alternative to flying? And these studies kind of in the past year or two have come out being like, no, cruise ships are really bad. Um, And the first thing I want to say is that I hate cruises. Everyone in my family knows that I hate cruises. I won't get on a cruise. I don't have a good time. I don't think they're fun. I got really into... um like sinking ocean liners a couple weeks ago and like you couldn't pay me enough money to get on a big boat right now so i'm not here like defending the cruise line those floating petri dishes i'm deathly scared of cruises i think they're horrific um they're so dirty (laughs) um but basically what people have been saying the study says is that there are six ocean liners in the ocean that produce more like emissions than all of the cars in europe which is an interesting stat because it is based on sulfur oxide and nitrogen oxide instead of, you know, CO2. And so it's an interesting kind of way that we're looking at this. And so I'm also curious to hear about your kind of interest areas and in like where emissions are important to reduce kind of fastest. This isn't to say that cruise ships aren't emitting CO2. Like I'm, I understand that. And they're emitting a lot of it. And there's um, a stat that is in CO2, which I think is that four flights equal one cruise in terms of like passenger CO2. And obviously there's like things that vary there. Um, But even using that to me feels misleading because the purpose of a cruise and a purpose of a flight are two very different things, right? So if you're talking about emissions for hosting someone on a cruise ship for a week and talking about emissions of a flight where you're trying to get from point A to point B, those are different interactions. And so I guess I just feel like these are all bad things that need to be called out. But I see a lot of people using these stats and these numbers kind of just in order to scare people and tell people that they're, that they're and sorry, I see people using these stats and numbers in order to scare people and tell people that their carbon footprint and personal responsibility isn't important because there's nothing we can do because these giant actors are the only ones kind of causing harm. And the last study I wanted to kind of quote that I will also link is this this article from Stanford Social Innovation Review, which is the science of what makes people care. Um, and there's a lot of these type of studies that, you know, are where I get really nervous, where you see people saying stuff like your carbon footprint is important. And so basically, in terms of science, like people care more when they're um, when they're invested in things like that's just like empathy and all of these these elements. And there's another study that also showed kind of just pure appeal to empathy doesn't work as well as stats and numbers. And if we as people who are advocating for, you know, change in terms of climate change and, you know, better policies are using fake data in the long run, that only really hurts the cause, even if you don't mean to be misrepresenting studies. That was a lot. (laughs) But I guess we can start wherever you wanted to start. Why are you shaking your head at me? Just because that's just too much. That's just too much stuff. That's the whole point is I gave you a five minute intro and now you get to break stuff down. Okay. That was the whole point of this podcast. Okay. So let's let's take this in like 
digestible pieces, at least for me. So well, that's what we're doing. I just wanted to give you a nice high level overview to begin. Got it. Okay. So th the first issue here is what are these so-called carbon footprint or resource footprint calculators? Who created them? What are you learning from them? Are they corporate efforts to move blame from corporate action to individuals? There's a whole story there, but the basic part of it is that while some of the big oil companies like BP spent a lot of effort making these carbon footprint calculators more and more accurate, accurate in quotes, meaning figuring out what's the carbon signature of driving to the store or using one product versus another, there's a whole science of that. And it didn't start with BP, despite the kind of statements that it did. It started with the development of kind of a nerdy sounding field of life cycle analysis, cradle to grave examination of what's the impact of buying or owning an iPhone or a bag of grapes or whatever else. That process is one that evolved from trying to understand from the bottom up how do our decisions as individuals, as communities, as corporations, how do they add up to the total impact on the planet? So that's not something that came from BP, but it is something that BP and other big corporations ran with as efforts to either explain and understand our carbon signature or efforts to obfuscate and to hide the fact that, in fact, our decisions about whether I buy product A or product B are really part of a process of just buying their products in the end. Because if you buy a car that gets 30 miles to the gallon versus 32 miles to the gallon, it's not a big difference. You're still putting money into the hands of that very same set of corporations. So there's a story about personal responsibility versus corporate responsibility, that's one where it's easy to get lost in the numbers and to say, I'm making this marginal choice versus I'm buying this brand of toilet paper, which is made from slightly less waste <laughs> material than this other one. Right. That whole conversation, if you are trying to just preserve the current economy, which basically big oil companies are trying to do, is one that is deflecting from corporate responsibility because it's missing the far it's missing the forest for the individual trees. That said, the way that we educate ourselves and change behavior is also about learning does it matter if I buy Kleenex brand A versus Charmin brand B? V versus does it matter if I choose to always walk to work or telecommute or bike to work versus buying a gas guzzling car. Though there are choices out there that make a big difference and there are choices that make a small difference. And the choices on average that corporations make have a bigger impact. And so I kind of get frustrated when, when people try to break it down and say it's all personal responsibility or it's all corporate behavior. Hopefully corporations learn from what we learn as individuals and as smaller companies. And that's the process that we need to, to accelerate. And the problem with all of this is that we have run out of time to slowly and gradually learn what the impacts are. We are in a situation where 
our climate choices need to be made fast and they need to be made accurately. And so in my mind, these things like carbon footprint tools, they are just a piece of much more rapid systemic change. So I know I went on too long as well. No, but that's, that's good. That's, that's, that's what helpful. I worry about is getting lost in the debate. And we'll get to the cruise ships in a second. But it's this okay. idea that these tools are diversions to avoid thinking about corporate behavior. On the one hand, I, and I hope everyone listening, can recognize when an analytic tool will allow us to help make better choices about our behavior. Is it better to go to each trip we go to the store separately, or is it better to so-called trip chain, where you link your various buying events together so you don't go out and back from the home each time? That's one Is level. that not just called running errands? <laughs> that is called running errands. But what, what you're getting at here is there's running errands smartly and running errands not smartly. So right. that's one that's one area where we need to think. But the bigger story is don't let making those individual small learning behaviors be an excuse not to hold corporations accountable. Because as you said, when we add up which corporations are most responsible, of course, they're selling products to us, but there's about 100 corporations that are the source of about 90% of the carbon in, in, in the system. So if we don't force them to change, it doesn't matter if we pick Charmin versus Kleenex. That is right. important, but at a much more small scale level than why are we letting corporations box us in to think our only decisions are between vehicle, between gas-powered cars that get marginally different mileage when we can do things dramatically different, move to electric right. vehicles, move to mass transit, build smarter communities. Those are choices that we as politicians, as individuals, as consumers, absolutely have to force corporations to make more rapidly than they are doing today. And so right. one kind of you know, wonderful little example is there's a former assistant secretary um, of energy efficiency under Republican leadership. They formed a little company um, called Engine Number One, and they did a very clever takeover of the board, essentially, of a major oil company by getting their more educated people in place. They are able to affect change at the corporate level from their individual learning about the benefit of renewable energy over fossil fuel. That's something that a carbon footprint calculator doesn't capture. But after the fact, you can really get in and say, wow, these guys sat down, these, these men and women sat down, figured out how to make a big difference, and they put it into effect. Right. I guess you went the other direction in that, you know, using a carbon footprint to be like, this is the only action I need to take. And I think I see the other side of it a lot, which is that, carbon footprint isn't important because these companies do so much. There is no action I can take. We just kind of watch the climate go to shit. And I guess, you know, we see that a lot with the term now is kind of like equal fatalism or this like nihilistic type viewpoints. And we saw it a lot when that IPCC report was leaked. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the report that basically people were reading and being like the IPCC says there's nothing we can do. But that's not what it like, said. Fuck, right. Well, so that's the point. Like, people read these things and interpret it in a way that absolves them of responsibility. And I guess that's the side where I get more concerned. But it's interesting to hear that you kind of see the other side of 
you know, lack of advocacy due to these tools? So, I mean, you know, I don't want to be optimistic about everything, but I see the fact that we're now having a discussion about our carbon footprint tools being used properly or improperly. That's that's a wonderful leap forward from before when nobody cared about these things and when we weren't looking at these numbers. And so, Ooh, bestie, no. I'm afraid to tell you this. I don't think it's good. I think that you see young people saying that the climate is doomed and so there's nothing they can do. And so it doesn't matter if they litter. It doesn't matter if they throw their non-reusable straw into the ocean, right? Like they're like, it doesn't matter because there's nothing I as an individual can do. So even if we're talking about carbon footprint, I guess that for me feels bad. No, but I, I think it, I think the opposite is the case because I see people saying, let's do the analysis around plastic straws versus macaroni straws versus um, metal straws. And they say, this is interesting, but we're not going to save the planet by choosing which kind of straw, i.e. we're not going to save the planet by doing a carbon footprint around straws. We should right. still pick the more sustainable product. The real issue is... How do we learn from doing these little carbon footprint calculations to say, why are we getting boxed in so that the only choices are a paper straw versus a macaroni straw, as opposed to saying, we need to move to no straws. No this is a great example. This right. is a great example where it's like, unless you need a straw, don't use a straw. <laughs> but, the, but the point is that these individual cases around recycling materials these are learning moments so that we can then say, right. we need to invest in products that are themselves more sustainable and we need to look more broadly at it. So we all have cell phones and all our cell phones have materials in them, rare earths, that are mined not only unsustainably in terms of their carbon footprint, but also in terms of their human rights footprint. Right. And that is an example of something where choosing between the iPhone and the Samsung phone is not a sustainability choice. The real choice is we need to have conflict-free materials in all these phones. Right. That's a place where doing this calculation gets you ready to then take on corporate behavior and say, we collectively are going to demand more sustainable materials. And so the case you brought up about cruise ships is interesting because on the one hand, if cruise ships were powered with renewable energy and if the cruise ships were built with renewable energy and if they didn't also dump their bilge into the bays of <laughs> exotic places, that's a long list of ifs, but carbon footprint tools are a part of the process to think through What's the full range of impacts? It's not just the carbon. It's also the impact on water. It's the impact right. on local communities that often get dumped on when a thousand people invade right. some small tropical island. And it's those choices that we are not as individuals or as a society making fast enough. We've got to start making those sustainability choices more quickly, even if they inconvenience us or in particular corporations. Yeah, that makes sense. This also just feels like maybe you're just talking to adults. You know, I was like, oh, I'm on TikTok. And I was like, oh, maybe it is an app for children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that was my takeaway from hearing you say that. I was like, oh, like, people are having those conversations. Um, so that's, like, good to hear, I guess. But, okay, then let's talk about the next part of the cruise ship thing. 
-hmm. which is the misinformation. And I think you see a lot of people, I think you see a lot of people (laughs) the other day, this is like a sidebar. The other day someone was talking about how in their first college class, some girl said something and it was like a direct, you know, like Tumblr quote that has been immortalized in our like cultural zeitgeist, which is fucking absurd to me. And it was like an incorrect historical fact. And she was like, well, I get a lot of my theory from like the internet. And it's like, yeah, you can't just watch TikToks or like YouTube videos and regurgitate those facts. And so I guess well, I'm curious. facts, of course, is part of the story. <laughs> you can't just regurgitate those things that Ben Shapiro once said on live. Um, but I guess on that note, like, A, how do you combat misinformation from kind of people who feel like they should be on your side? And then B, like, what about those studies that really harp on, you know, not greenhouse gas emissions and stuff like that, that people then take and run with because the science isn't like as well, well I, mean, I think that so th- th- this this is a broader symptom of not being in a science literate society and we do not live in a science literate society we live in a society where there is good science out there but disregarding that science is seen in many circles as just as valuable as listening to it and so you know this quote that you sometimes see in cartoons that is you know my opinion is as good as your facts And that's the broader issue that relates to COVID and the presidential campaigns and deforestation. It's so weird to me that people feel like we are all equally qualified on every topic. So uh, there's this great quote from uh, a comedian who says, you know, when I was in school, being being bad at science was called failing. It wasn't called alternate facts. It was just called failing. (laughs) You just failed the class, dude. It's okay. But, but I mean, so this is one of the many downsides of this kind of social media intense society where it's easy to find different views to parrot that have no relation to facts, a little bit of relation to facts, or are quite aligned. And there's just no discriminator out there because there is such a flood of information. And we're willing to, to follow the piece of information that is convenient, not the piece of information that actually goes back to a research source because that's hard work, right? Well, yeah, people love confirmation bias. Like that's like human psych 101. It's like people look to validate their own opinions. So if you apply this to the cruise ship story, um, you know, there are huge damages that the cruise industry does, but there's also huge damages that flying airplanes does and our choices of disposable materials and the fact that we have essentially let corporations dictate our choices in this space. And right. what we're not doing is saying we, we don't want to choose just between vehicles that are marginally better or worse. We want to choose between communities that don't need vehicles. And right. those are not choices that corporations that are in general, profitable by selling us stuff, want to offer. So that's an area where social movements, whether you want to call it, you know, the Greta Thunberg Fridays for the Future or the Extinction Revolution, are trying to open that conversation so that we recognize we have a wider range of both power over corporations and choices that we need to make and that if we demonstrate there's a market for that, corporations will follow. And I think that's right. where we lose sight of the fact that cruise ships have impacts, 
our choice of you know what going out to eat, having disposable containers has an impact, but also the corporations that are responsible for so much of the carbon in the atmosphere, we have more power over them than we'd like to think. Well, that was the other thing, is that these companies are beholden to investors, right? So, well, not all of them, I guess. people, Some people, some people don't get to make it public. Um, but right. <laughs> if you got that joke, it was really funny. If you didn't, I'm really sorry. Um, but if, you know... You're beholden to these big investors, obviously, which are like the banks of the world and all of these like big wealthy people. But also these people don't make money if people don't buy and use these products. Right. So if if you are like, oh, let me if everyone in the world tomorrow was like my carbon footprint is my most important thing, our fuel consumption would go down dramatically we would change and these right companies away. would be forced to change. Right. So that's the that's exactly the point where I actually think that these carbon footprint tools are useful. It's not that they deflect your attention from the corporate behavior. What they do is they empower the individual. Now, they only empower the individual if you choose to act. And one of the real worries here is that when you look at how long it's taken to make some of these changes in the past, you know, it took decades for smoking to decline dramatically in the United States. It took a while to, to get even some states to pass laws against plastic bags. It has taken forever, but, but then there's Australia, which has a huge carbon footprint and some of the dirtiest companies in the world, and they were able to ban plastic bags in an incredibly short amount of time. So our behaviors are quite varied, and what we're not doing is recognizing, I think again and again, that a lower carbon, a lower water intensive, a lower indigenous destroying lifestyle is not limiting yourself. It's actually freeing yourself from a lot of the negatives of these products. That story is still not part of the, as you call the zeitgeist, the discussion around what it means to be, you know, kind of a, a, a an environmentally aware citizen. And yeah. If, if the story for smoking applies to climate change, we're really in big trouble because literally our perspective on smoking in the United States changed as smokers died out. Now smoking is far less common. I mean, look, y'all baby boomers might not have that much time. <laughs> well, so, but this is an example. If we're not going to learn from these past stories, then this whole idea that we're going to you know, become more science literate. It's just not going to happen. And that is what I see as the, as the real challenge here, that our clock to make better climate choices is not one where we have lots of chances to learn. We have to do these right. things now. And every time I see an opportunity to invest in lower carbon products, to push corporations in the right direction, to take the kind of action that, quite frankly, you know, I see coming out of some of the more progressive governments around the world. These are not things we can experiment with anymore. We've wasted those decades. And so now is the time to make a series of smarter choices. But human behavior is not aligned with that. We're very slow moving yeah. when it comes to <laughs> comes to consumer and social change. Yeah. I guess then for me, the question becomes kind of an idealistic one, which is what does this like not post climate, I'm like, what, this is post racial society. Like, what is this, you know, climate change is an issue, but we're on a better path, like world look like to me, it feels very, um, 
like when people talk about like communism, right? Where you're like, we've lived in this society for so long that we cannot view another alternative as a feasible reality. And so this is something that we use in therapy sometimes, which is called the miracle question, which is, you know, if you woke up tomorrow and, you know, all of these problems that you came to therapy for were fixed, what's the first thing you would notice? And so I'm curious for you if, you know, climate change was no longer the hot button issue that it is, besides being out of a job, um, what what would the first cue-in be for you? I mean, I would absolutely love to be out of a job in the sense of we had solved our carbon emissions. But even if we solve carbon emissions, we haven't solved the problems of microplastics in the ocean and oh my God, Dad, that was the, not the, question. the degradation of, of lands of indigenous people. There would be lots of other equally pressing problems. Yes, yes, yes. We get it. You're super employable. What would be the cue and sign for you about climate change? No, no. I, I, th- I think I do get it. I mean, solving the carbon problem is a small part of solving our unsustainable society problem. And if we don't solve carbon, then everything else is a little bit like deck chairs on the Titanic. It just doesn't matter. But there are lots of other equally pressing problems out there. Okay, yeah. Okay, Dad. Right? Theoretically, like, yes, in life, I know there are a lot of things to work on. There are a lot of issues. If we solved climate change, tomorrow you woke up. What is your cue in sign that we've solved it? That's the question. That's it. I mean, the first one is that we would see no fossil fuel burning. We wouldn't see caught. We wouldn't see internal combustion cars. We wouldn't see power plants burning fossil fuels. That would be great. That would be a wonderful start. That would not solve environmental problems, but it would be a massive step forward. And that's that's where I think these tools help us to envision that world where emissions are down. But like, the- I can't. Like, and maybe this is just me being like stubborn and like not a climate scientist, but I genuinely don't know what that world of, you know, climate change is no longer one of our most pressing, you know, mass fatality events that's upcoming. Like, I don't have what that world looks like. And so I'm curious for you, like what, what a good climate world would be like. You would wake up and you would walk to work. You would take the bus. You would have a bus that came to your house. Like what, what? What does it look like? Yeah, I actually don't think it has to look very, it might look very different, but I don't think it really needs to because we already know that we could be running the planet on renewable energy. And I don't just mean cars cars and um, power plants. Factories too could be run on clean energy. That wouldn't solve all of our problems, but it would solve a huge number of them. So to my mind, that world could look pretty similar, but it would be a much healthier place and i think we would see the immediate benefits of that that's we interesting see, because sorry keep going no i mean i mean we we would see less of the air quality problems we would see less episodes like the flint michigan uh disaster in, in the in the water system yeah. um that would be a huge step forward but it wouldn't it wouldn't mean that we had somehow, you know, environmentalism could go away because we have a long list of these challenges ahead of us. Oh, well, yeah, sorry. I wasn't trying to imply that okay. by solving the carbon crisis, we would be saved. Right. Like, you know that thing where people were wearing those shirts that are like we are the virus and I'm like, yeah, that's so fucking weird. But like low key y'all. <laughs> um, people cause a lot of their own problems. That's like that theory that we haven't met intelligent life because 
intelligent life has a like a lifespan like it kills itself out have you seen that one i sure you have. must have seen that one yeah like that's like i'm like yeah like i i think if we solve this crisis like another one is coming um but like right. you know I'm, I'm just kind of curious what that looks like because i think for me and for a lot of people who talk about kind of solving climate change or like what that world would look like it's like okay like what commune do i have to join like am i going to be the farmer this week or am i going to have to like take out Mm -hmm. the poop bucket you know what i mean like i think a lot of us see this climate change better future as incredibly different and that jump is really hard to get to i mean it might be but i actually just given how slowly we kind of change things so for example when the internal combustion engine vehicle, when Henry Ford's Model T came out, the first big outcry was from horse and buggy people who couldn't envision a world where we weren't using horse and buggies. And when Henry Ford was designing his car originally, he said, I want, I want to listen to consumers, but not too much, because when I ask a consumer who's riding a horse what they want, they say, a little bit faster horse. Right. As opposed to saying this new thing he had. Now it turns out that his his invention, the internal combustion and then he screwed car, us all. That's right. Was, you know, something that now looking back a hundred years, we wish that he had stuck with his first vehicle, which was actually an electric car. It was not mm-hmm. a gas powered car, but that got that. phased out. Um so the sustainable world might look really different, but I actually suspect it would look like a pretty slow evolution in the sense that 30 years ago, no one could envision a world without coal-fired power plants. Now everyone can envision that world, and it doesn't look that different. So solving the climate problem needs us to zero out all combustion of fossil fuels. That in itself won't change our social problems. I had this colleague who used to say that he's an economist and he said, you know, I was trying to learn economics and thinking about economics in the field. And I finally realized that once I thought of greed as a law of nature, like gravity, economics was easy because I was thinking (laughs) in the terms that people were doing stuff. So I think that it is not as transformative as you might think but if we don't make that transformation, if we don't do that carbon story better, then these other problems are going to be just unsolvable. Yeah. Well, then that's the other side is if we don't get our stuff under control, what does that look like? Well, that is you know, take all of your favorite disaster, dystopian future, Mad Max movies, roll them into one. That's a world we don't want to go to. Um you know, that's a world of unimaginable poverty and weather extremes and food shortages and horrifically short lifetimes. That's just a world we don't want to go down. And everyone mm. hopefully gets aligned on that. Whether you think that we solve the climate story by individual choices and carbon footprint or whether it's all corporate behavior, either way, that's a world that we've got to avoid. What do you think our timeline is on that? Well, sadly, we know that pretty well. We need to be weaned off of fossil fuels clearly by mid-century, by 2050. But earlier than that, massively improves. Well, it's not just it's better. It massively improves our chances given that humans have proven they don't tend to do things right the first time or even the second time. So this new 
2035 is when we need to phase out fossil fuels. That's like tomorrow. <laughs> That's like tomorrow. And that means that, you know, whether you're a carbon footprint enthusiast oh, so or we're like a social change. Screwed. Essentially, it is a it's a choice between a horrific unlivable or just a painful or, or choices that allow us to give ourselves some breathing room. So I don't think that we're going to look back after 2035 and say, oh, this was that hard if we do it. What happens if we get like part of the way? Well, it's going to be really ugly. We'll have to do that so one there's another the, it's, So it's not like a yes or no. It's not like a, oh, it's a middle ground. It's a yes or no. We've like a binary here. No, it's, it's, it is, in fact, it, it is, it's not a binary. It is graded. But the problem is it's not some slow, gentle slope. Yeah, but like it's the first grade is horrible. Yeah, first grade it's like, is horrible. It's like, oh, yeah, like the ocean like slopes off gradually. But like the gradual slope is like 100 feet. <laughs> you know what it, I mean? It, Where it's, it's like, pretty it's ugly. a slope. So we'll come back and do do one on the IPCC and how dire the warnings are if we don't get our act in gear. But just to close out this episode, the good part of the IPCC is that it still says, if we take advantage of not just the science and technology we have today, but the behavior change that we see in young people, the, the, the change in awareness that these different tools have brought us, there is a path out of this mess. We're just not working fast enough to get there at yeah. this at the present time. No, I agree with everything you said. My other favorite thing is that whenever you talk about the IPCC and you're like, it says as if you don't actively like, write for them, like, aren't you the IPCC? I am so proud to be part of the IPCC. And I've been working with them since 1999. So absolutely, yes. Incredible. Okay. I guess I was asking you, I feel like, what changes do people need to make? But I'm guessing we less care about the personal on this side, but like, how do you think that we hold these corporations accountable? I think we have to make decisions around their products. And some of that's personal choice, but some of that is out and out protest. And there are things that we should not be standing for. And that's some of the dirty choices that we see when big corporations talk about good PR, and then they still invest in fossil plants or um, billionaires in the United States or Australia choose to invest in coal plants when clean energy is cheaper. Those are some of the choices that we can't stand for anymore. And we need both the protest movement and also the pocketbook protest where we simply don't buy those products. Those are two elements that yeah. we've just got to emphasize. Yeah. No, that all makes sense to me. I'm like, yep, sound, sounds about right. This makes me feel very validated in my like public opinions, though. Except for that Whenever TikTok you stuff you talked about before, which still worries me. But... Do you know what my biggest TikTok beef is today? Well, there's two. I have a video that's going viral about my fan fiction use, which is a little annoying to me. But my other video that's doing decently well is people talking about the protest on UC Berkeley's campus today being like, this is so, they've gone too far. And I'm like, I don't feel like you guys remember like what protesting actually is when you don't like feel like you have to be there or like are going to get an Instagram photo. Well, since you know since I, mean? I was there at the, at the Berkeley protest today on the first day of the semester, it was actually Do you like the blood. It was actually gratifying for me to see people out there saying we demand affordable, humane housing. That's what the protest was about today. Yeah. And I, I mean, and, and not gentrifying people's parts. Exactly. So the mixture of student housing and better housing for homeless and people who have been kicked out of 
of, of mental and other care, which is part of the reason why People's Park is overrun with you know, homeless people. That's a social thing. And that's, you know, I, I respect both the students who need housing and the people who are saying closing this down without building alternatives is not a success. That is just displacing homelessness. So I was pleased to right. see those protests today. Well, that's what I said online. And I mean, I guess like I do agree that the blood in the fountains was a lot. Uh, that was a different protest. It was two different protests. I, I agree. We do stack but our I think it's interesting. This is true. That is so Berkeley. Someone's like, if that was my first day at Berkeley, I wouldn't even want to be there. It's like, have you looked at what UC Berkeley is like every day? Your first day, babe, every day. I just day. think it's an educational um, experience. I love it. So, But also, I think it's really interesting to now see people who are like, I believe in protesting. I protested last year be confronted with these other types of protests that organizers like are really working very hard on. And like the concept of a protest is, you know, disruption and all of these things and being like, well, this doesn't fit my like prescribed protest. I'm like, that's a little weird to me guys. Like pull it together. We all need some education. So let's hope that this conversation got us to some of these points. Yeah. All right. Do you want to take us out? I do. So, all right. So I do have a question for you. Wow. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, as you talk to other students, kind of what do you think that makes you hopeful? Is it this education process or or what? I literally just harped on like ego fatalism and I'm going to be like nothing. What makes me hopeful? Hopeful. Um, that's a long pause I'm going to have to cut out. Um, so let me ask you a different I question. Let's just cut here and I'll, I'll ask you a simple question. <laughs> we'll cut. Next question. Okay. We just cut that question. Okay. So start with the, do you want to take it out and we'll wrap it up? No, I'm leaving that in. That's funny as hell. Okay. What's your next question? All right, next question. Moving on. End end of this episode. Okay. We're done. What's your question? Oh, my question is what makes you hopeful? Oh, okay, you actually want me to answer it. Okay, what makes me hopeful? Yeah. Um, I think that I've seen a lot of people who care very deeply about issues and are more willing to talk about them publicly. And that's not just climate change. That's kind of across the board. And I think I have a lot of like peers and people who I like don't respect in a lot of these spaces, but I also have a lot of people who I think are doing really good advocacy. Okay. So we're going to have to follow some of those folks as we uh, get into the next episodes. All right. Well, thank you, dad. Thank you for recording. Thank you, Shade. All right. And thank you guys for listening and we'll hopefully see you next week. You have to say bye. Okay, bye-bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.